This is Secure, hosted by Charles Latimer and presented by FinFit, a podcast empowering business leaders to build a financially stable and resilient workforce. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Dr. Vic Strecker today. He is a pioneer in the field of behavioral science, a professor at the University of Michigan, the author of Life on Purpose, and is also the founder and CEO of Kamano, which is a revolutionary wellness platform in the workplace that is focused on purpose. And it's really extraordinary, not only his research and perspectives, uh, but the work that he's doing out in industry. And it's an absolute pleasure to welcome him here today. Vic. Thank you so much, Charles. I'm really looking forward to this time together. And uh, it, it's just, we've always had great conversations and now actually recording it is is wonderful. Yeah, the, the same. I was actually, uh, that, that was going to be part of my preamble, which was we've had so many wonderful conversations recently with so many interesting insights. I've learned so much from them. And it's really nice, I think, to be able to share this with our listeners. I think they'll really appreciate your perspectives. You know, one thing I've not had an opportunity to do in our conversations is actually learn a little bit of your history. You know, where you started in academia, you know, what were your kind of earlier research and how did that sort of fuel uh, your your efforts today? And, and just kind of give us a little bit of a backdrop in terms of your journey. Yeah, sure. Well, I've been in this field for a long time. I, I will just say, as an undergraduate, um, I was a math and science major. So I actually only took one psychology course and was nearly thrown out of it, too, when I exclaimed after, after you know, the graduate student instructor kept saying, tell us how you're feeling. And I just didn't want to and didn't know how to anyway. And then I said, here's how I'm feeling. I'm feeling like if I drop this pen in this class, half the time it floats up. There's no science to what you guys do. None. And I'm so used to courses where this always drops and then I can understand things and it makes sense and can build from that. And this field of psychology and behavioral science has no science, just crap. Anyway, that was really stupid of me, and it's just a miracle that I ended up surviving that class. And then I started working in a statistics office of uh, the State Department of Public Health here in Michigan, just as an intern. I mean, I needed to work. I was a little lost, really, frankly, didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and so I started working in statistics and public health. And I started like doing all this. I knew about, you know, computer programming and a little about stats. So I could start figuring out that about 50% of disease and death was related to our lifestyles and the decisions we make. And it kind of dawned on me, wow, what is, why hasn't anybody studied this behavior change stuff? <laughs> and of course, I, I, I thought, wow, maybe I should change my, my thinking about this. So I went to the University of Michigan where they really specialized in quantifying what I had thought to that point, the unquantifiable, you know, things like attitudes and values and beliefs and, uh, you know, stress or social support or these things and quality of life. These are the things, especially at the Institute for Social Research, where I got a pretty quick internship and started working there and doing well as a grad student. And I fell in love with that. I fell in love with the idea of like, how do you, you know, all these people talk about hard science and I get that, 
you know, the harder sciences, physics and chemistry and all of that. And they call this the, quote, soft science. But I started realizing, no, I've had a lot of the hard science. This is a lot harder. It's, <laughs> and it's also right. some, some of the most important stuff you could actually study is, quote, soft science. And I realized I really want to learn all about this. I want, want to learn how to help people make changes in their lives. And that's what public health is about. And so I ended up just continuing on, got a PhD, and then still kind of sticking with some of this geekiness that I have uh, with computers. I, I realized pretty early in my career that you could build what were called back then expert systems uh, to, rather than having, you know, you can't take, for all the people in this country, you can't have a nutritionist for every person. You know, you just can't afford it in public health, and you can't help everybody with a counseling system for quitting smoking. You know, you need something else in addition to a human. So I started building computer software algorithms using all the theory as I was learning to, to try to help people quit smoking or managing their stress or many other things. And we would tailor it to that person. You know, so we'd collect information and then say, ah, based on what you were saying, but this is all done on a mainframe computer. You know, so it was really, <laughs> there weren't, little computers when I started and it I remember started, the day when big data was a spreadsheet right you know it's like yeah yeah the evolution's been extraordinary so we, we, yeah would you mind mapping that evolution because I think it's really interesting because those, those early days of quantification and all, all the way into today what what, is, what does that look like for you yeah, well, you know, we kind of coined this term tailored health communications, where we were starting to learn what the active ingredients were based on our models and theories and a lot of empirical evidence. We could say, ah, okay, we know that we should ask this question and then we should respond in this way, et cetera. And we started building these kind of, you know, really rudimentary coaching tools that could tailor the information. And, you know, if I had a book like that, that had all the, if I wrote a book on how to quit smoking or something, and many people had at that time in the early eighties, who reads a book to change their behavior? Not that many, right. you know? And so I could walk into a room with cigarette smokers and I could ask them, do you want to quit? How much do you want to quit? Why do you want to quit? What's holding you back, et cetera. And I could just tear out the pages of a book and create maybe seven pages out of that. You know, an old friend of mine, uh, Graham Kerr, who was the galloping gourmet on TV. I don't know if you remember him, but he had the only cooking show along with Julia Child. He'd pour butter and cream and brandy over everything and set fire <laughs> to it. As well. But anyway, I worked with him quite a bit in the past. And he said, you know, in Julia Child's cookbook that has well over a thousand recipes, the average person uses three. Mm. Like all I need to do is just like with a computer algorithm – ask what you needed and wanted and use some kind of algorithm to tear out those right recipes or for whatever kind of behavior. Bottom line is this like doubled to tripled smoking cessation rates, it doubled to tripled mammography screening rates, all these things. And I, so I started building a laboratory and we amassed like over $45 million in NIH funded research to continue studying these active ingredients. Long and short then is, um, at that time, my 
daughter, Julia, we were on sabbatical in the Netherlands and we were doing a lot of research um, with a couple of universities there on this sort of thing. And they're great there. They're amazing researchers. And we brought our two kids and one was our baby daughter, Julia, who's six months old. And she caught a chickenpox virus either mm. there or just before we left. But this chickenpox virus usually, you know, causes a rash and a fever for a day. But this attacked and actually destroyed her heart. And when we were there, she started losing weight and um, we ended up having her in the hospital and they couldn't figure out what was going on. And then finally, a cardiologist walked by and said, she doesn't look right and ran an echocardiogram and took us into a room and said, she's going to be dead within next month. And I remember asking the doctor, like, could I, anything we can do, like a heart transplant or anything. He said, no, those don't work. And you should go home, let her die in peace. So next day we flew home and we put her into the hospital where I was teaching at the University of North Carolina. And they said, actually, she does have some hope. She, she could possibly get a heart transplant, but it's not been done in the southeastern part of the United States. This is very new. It's been done at Stanford, a couple of other places, but not much. And there's very little research on it. And so, you know, no one had answers. Like, would this heart grow with her if she got one? What are the chances of getting one? It turns out half the kids who were waiting for a new heart died before getting one. And then within five years, the kids who got one would die. So you can do your own math. It's like, you know, 50% times 50%. It's, she had a 25% chance of becoming six years old. And so we were making all these fairly complex decisions as patients, parents of patients. And I remember being in the medical school library, like pulling out on something called Grateful Med. I don't know if you remember these big laser discs that you'd pop in to some laser I disc. Do. Reader. And I'd be pull, putting in all sorts of questions about heart transplants and survivorship and children, et cetera, tons of stuff. And go, oh, you know, I know that guy at Stanford. I'm going to call him. And my dad was with me, and I'll never forget. He turned to me and he said, you know, you are so lucky, Vic. And I turned to him, and, you know, here we are waiting for a new heart. Our daughter is nearly dead. You know, I mean, she had just lost so much weight. And I said, you know, really tired. I just said, why am I lucky, Dad? He said, because you can do this. And no one else can get information the way you can. You're amazing at, you know, how to do this with computers, you know how to do this. So I know there's a long-winded story, but it turned out um, she did get a heart, which is great. She became the first child to get a new heart in southeastern United States. And I ended up uh, deciding to build a business called Health Media which was really designed to do what I could do on a computer, but, you know, to tailor information, to do tailored health coaching. And, you know, it wasn't in the normal purview of a professor, especially an assistant professor to be doing this, but it, it became a really big company. We ended up becoming Kaiser Permanente's Thrive Campaign's digital backbone. We ended up reaching 55 million and oh. I also kept my day job as a professor. I moved up to the University of Michigan where we created the business. And, um, you know, it's because of my daughter, Julia. It's because of a need. And then, 
you know, it, it just, I wanted to try to give something like this to other people so they could um, get the, have the skills or tools that I did. Anyway, we sold that company to Johnson and Johnson, which was wonderful. And J and J, you know, really did a great job with that. When I left J and J though, I decided to create a new company, um, called Kumanu and Kumanu, uh, and, and in part it's, it's due to my, my daughter then when she was 19 ended up passing away. So, and when that happened, she was in nursing school at the University of Michigan. And um, when that happened, I kind of lost, I, you know, we were really successful. I had a laboratory, you know, we were bringing in tons of research. I just sold a company and had, you know, more money than I ever expected or needed. And then suddenly our daughter passes away and just going, wow, I, I just have no will to do anything anymore, including live. And uh, about two months after she passed away, I found myself in a kayak about two miles out on Lake Michigan. And it was still spring and the water was about 45 degrees or so, 50 degrees maybe. And it was 5.15 in the morning and, the, the, you know, it was like a Slurpee. And I was I just gotten out of bed. I was in my boxers and T-shirt. And I know that's too much information, but <laughs> I was literally like I Lake Michigan was so beautiful and so just perfectly still. And it was still dark, but I could hear it and I could just barely see it through a little fog. And I just jumped in my kayak. We had a place right have a place right on the beach there. And I just started sprinting out to Wisconsin, <laughs> which is 84 more miles. <laughs> and I found myself two miles out in Lake Michigan and the sun came up and I don't know how to describe this any other way, but um, I've, I felt my daughter in me and I felt Julia in me and I felt her saying, you got to get over this dad. Um, you're at a crossroads. And I knew I was at a crossroads. It was almost like there was a sign that had a crossroads that said life and death, you know, Wisconsin death, you know, and I was really very seriously thinking about just continuing on. I thought, why not? Who cares? It's beautiful. Out. Just do that. And when I felt her in me, and I, I don't know, as a scientist, I don't know how to explain that at all. I still don't. But it turns out it was Father's Day, and I had no idea it was Father's Day. I get upset even thinking about this now because it was kind of her gift to me. And <laughs> and I turned around and uh, paddled back. And I, the first thing I did, I, I just looked down on myself almost and just said, Vic, you're in like deep, deep trouble right now. I mean, you are close to death and you have a choice. I mean, you have to fix yourself or you'll die for sure. And and I, I really did look down at myself and said, you know, you're a behavioral scientist. You help other people. You've helped, you know, millions of people. If you can't help yourself, what's, you know, you're not worth your own salt, really. So I thought, how would I help me? And I started this little me search thing. I literally just pulled out a sheet of paper and I was still kind of wet from being outside. And I just wrote down at the top of a piece of paper, what matters most? And I wrote down my family, I wrote down my students, I wrote down my research, everything. I just started writing this stuff down. And uh, 
And that changed my life. I mean, from that, I created what are called B goals. I'm here to be a, a good teacher. I'm here to be a good researcher and a curious person. I'm here to be a great family man, etc. I just kept writing those things down and I turned them into what are called B goals. And from that, I thought, okay, from this, I really need to think about what I need to do to be a great teacher. I, I wrote down, I'm gonna teach every one of my students as if they're Julia, my daughter. And I have 500 students. I mean, you know, how do you do that? So I started, but I started then on a campaign to manage my sleep better, manage uh, to start meditating every day or become more present, to become very physically active, to try to do something creative every day and to try to eat well. I called it space, sleep, presence, activity, creativity, and eating. And I started working on that concept for me, doing my own me search, you know, and, and just some research to say, okay, what do each of these things do in terms of giving more energy? But then I started like just monitoring those and figuring out what could I do to sleep better? What could I do to be more active or more present? So I, you know, et cetera. And my life totally changed. I started, in fact, I called the university. They had given me that semester and the next semester off and as much time actually as I needed. They said, you just, you lost your daughter. I mean, that's, you know, we can't imagine. So take as much time. And I called them up that morning coming back in my kayak and said, you know, I know this is, this is really nice of you to do, but it's the worst advice that I could get. I need to come back and I need to teach. And I'm gonna teach every one of my students like they're my own daughter. And I just took wow. on teaching, you wouldn't believe. And soon after, the the uh, students nominated me as the professor of the year. So I won, you know, at, at Michigan. And then Jim Harbaugh, the football coach, called me and said, hey, you know, Dr. Strecker, you're the professor of the year. And he was brand new. He's, and he made me the honorary captain. And, you know, that, all these things happened that were like, yeah. wow. Yeah, this is like really interesting. Yeah. And I decided to write a book about this. Um, I wrote it as a graphic novel called On Purpose. Uh, then I, since then, I've written a book with words in it, as my Harper One editor says, um, called Life on Purpose. And I also created, I, I thought, wow, you know, I tapped into something I think that's really fundamental to change, and that's finding purpose. It's finding direction. It's finding these B goals that you have. I'm here to be on this planet for this brief period of time. You know, my daughter lived 19 years. That's brief. But, you know, in the bigger picture of things, we all are here for a very brief period of time. And, you know, knowing that she might not survive all that long, we gave her a very big life. And we kind of learned ourselves, wow, we should live big lives. Why should we live on the sidelines of life or live life like it's practice or more importantly, live life as if we're going to live forever, which is what people usually do. And I said, I'm not here forever. I'm not even here for that long a time. So what can I do in this time to live the biggest life and leave the biggest legacy? And I know this all sounds I, I, that's that's a long-winded way to say no, that's why no. I created Kumanu, <laughs> the company I founded, because I wanted to reach people in the ways that I know how to reach people with digital health coaching, but in this more existential way. Your story is both astonishing and heartbreaking and inspiring 
And I, I just, I, I can see and feel you sprinting across that water towards elsewhere. Yeah. And, and the, the chill of the morning air and, and the light coming up across the water. I, I feel that. And I, and I think yeah. it, it's maybe on some level, certainly not at, I, I mean, I, I think most people can't imagine the tragedy of losing a child. I certainly can't. Um, but, I, I think most people can identify with sprinting towards elsewhere and yeah. and trying to reconstitute a sense of purpose and yet being in, in fight or flight. And and I, I really thank you so much for talking about those B goals, B, BE goals. Yeah. And what what's happening, I'm really curious, what's happening in the brain? I, I can imagine yeah. what's happening in the heart, but what's happening in the brain when that's happening? And how how beyond beagles, or, or maybe it's as simple as beagles, do, do, does one reconstitute a sense of purpose and get out of that yeah. sense of flight or fight? It's a, a wonderful question you're asking, actually. And it's something I've been so grateful to have wonderful colleagues, first in our lab, and then they've moved on to bigger and better things. Uh, one, Emily Falk, she's a, a wonderful researcher now at Penn. University of Pennsylvania, and she runs a big neuroscience lab there. And we continue to work together and putting people into MRI and having them think more about their purposeful values, their deeper, higher core values that are most meaningful to them, or like think about their daily routine or their values that they don't care about, something else. And what happens, we see in, com in contrast to that control condition, we see more blood flow going into a part of the brain right behind your eyebrows called the ventral medial prefrontal cortex. It's part of the prefrontal cortex. Humans have more VMPFC, ventral medial prefrontal cortex, by weight than any other animal by far, by far. And it's the most modern part of our brain. And that part is where our identity is. If we ask, think about who, who you are. You know, so I ask, who am I? Who am I? That part of the brain lights up. What do you value? That part of the brain. What are your, what are your possible selves in the future? So you have some future orientation. You're thinking about that right here. All of that stuff. And the amazing thing is that it downregulates the amygdala, which is one of the oldest parts of our brain, it's our fear center. It's where, I mean, dinosaurs had amygdala. They're very, very old things, two almond-shaped lobes deep, deep in your brain. And it turns out those are very important too. I mean, you know, if you ever saw Free Solo, the movie about Alex, Han I think, Honnold, um, free climbing without rope, El Capitan. I mean, he's thousands oh, of Oh, I saw up. that. It, it, it's breathtaking. I mean, for, for a guy who has a little bit of an issue with heights, oh, <laughs> me too. everything me too. I had for those 98 minutes or however long it was. But oh, yeah, yeah. What, what a Pretty much. That's story. a rock face, a sheer rock face where it looked like there were nail scratches in it somehow. And he would take those and jam his fingers into them. There's nothing. And, you know, I remember in the movie uh, Free Solo, they had, they put him into MRI. And his amygdala did not activate. <laughs> so it was really? inactive. Yeah. Really? So, oh, that's good. so interesting. 
want an amygdala. You Mine want lights that. up like a Christmas tree, evidently. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If I'm on a third story balcony, I look down and my amygdala is flashing. You know, so and we we all have that working for us, and that's important. Except Alex, he doesn't. Um, but sometimes it can hijack us. And if you think about things like COVID. If you think about all the stresses we go through every day, um, very often that amygdala can kind of take over. So we're consumed by fear. Just think about COVID. You know, a bunch of people ran out and bought AR-15s and stripped the shelves bare of hand sanitizer and, you know, basically crouched in their in their homes. And other people said, how can I help those healthcare workers? Or how can I help my elderly neighbor who's, you know, alone and doesn't have food and is afraid to go out? You know, there there's different ways of your brain can work. And one way is for your amygdala to just take over. And that's called bottom-up processing neurologically. Children have typically bottom-up processing until they turn adolescent and adult. Gradually, it moves to top-down processing, where this guru brain, this very modern prefrontal cortex, like, who am I? What matters to me? That starts dictating, and suddenly you have less conflict in your brain. There's a part of the brain related to conflict. That tones down, and very importantly, you're amygdala calms down. It's able to downregulate it. So it doesn't take over. And so we've been studying that. And then the question then, Charles, is can you train this ventral medial prefrontal cortex like you might train a muscle? Like, could you work it out? I, I, I was going to ask, you know, for, for those adults that maybe yeah. have had you know, tr early trauma, I'm, I'm sure is probably associated with those yeah. who may get stuck in a bottom-up framework, as it were. Sure. So what is that idea? Of, and this, I think, is interesting on on my side of the research where, you know, looking at sort of trauma uh, as an adult, as some maybe impacting things like financial and material instability that sort of lock you in to insecurity and instability across time. And so I'm just really curious, you know, for for individuals. And then, Kaylee, what's the impact then for organizations writ large, you know, in large portions of your workforce are, are working from that bottom-up framework? And, and so on an individual level, I, I, how do you sort of scaffold out of that in a sense to, to a top-down framework? Yeah. And then and then, then what, what sort of, I, I can sort of intuit what's in it for the individual, but what, what's it, what's in it then on a population level? What, what happens when an entire community transforms in that way? I love your questions, Charles. Um, and really what's happening is there's a whole intervention called self-affirmation where you are self-affirming your core purposeful values. And when that happens, and it literally, you can do this in five minutes. Like when I wrote down my core values, I was self-affirming. Um, suddenly this part of the brain is working a lot and it's kind of taking things over, which is good. And can it actually be worked out as a muscle? The one thing, there is some data now suggesting that there's more synaptic connections that start forming 
when you use a particular, when you use this ventral medial prefrontal cortex, which is good. Um, you kind of want that. In fact, to get a little more detailed, there's some a theory called synaptic pruning, which is even cooler. It's almost like, you know, you have a tree and you let it grow, but then you prune it to just have the most beautiful branches come up. And that's what your brain starts literally doing. So it doesn't necessarily add more brain volume. It's probably creating stronger connections and pruning out the inefficient connections or unnecessary connections. And so imagine your brain becoming more like pruned in a way, just more efficient. And what happens then, this part of the brain, as I said, relates to future orientation. So there's a great study done at Washington University that looked at people over 10 years and they looked at their purpose level at baseline how strong was your sense of purpose and direction in your life? And they looked at their net worth and uh, their net income. And then they followed them for 10 years and they found controlling for net worth and net income that people who had a stronger purpose made a lot more money 10 years later. Mm. And so the hypothesis would be, well, that's because they're not immediate buying immediate need things. They're there's a part of the brain called the ventral striatum, again, on a lower part of the brain that's related to rewards. If you're always, you know, buying things that reward you or always eating the ice cream all the time, you know, then later, you know, that's not good. And same with savings. Maybe you want to be using this part of the brain, thinking about the future and saving, which is why people do better. Yeah. So all I want to do in the world kind of is train people to use this amazing part of the brain that we're gifted with in some way. And you know, who knows how we evolved this thing? Because other, even chimps don't have nearly as much as we do. This is like really big in, in humans. Why not use it? Why let this lower part of our brain of reward and fear just hijack us every single day? That really that reminds me of, of a previous conversation that we had. It was a big light bulb moment for me that, that somehow purpose can be a scaffolding for delayed uh, gratification. Gratification. You got it. And that, yeah. and, and, and that really unpacks that for me because I really wanted to kind of sort of they can sort of understand what, what's the sort of governing dynamics of that. And it seems like it's all happening well, in the brain in some sense. And, you know. Yeah. And, you know, people often then say, well, isn't it just at the top of Maslow's hierarchy then after you've got everything else going for you? And that does not seem to be the case. In fact, the, there are many, many people in all walks of life who have very strong purposes. I have a very good friend, James Aranateway, who was an AIDS orphan in Uganda. And, you know, by the time he was five, his parents were dead. And his grandmother took over care. And he ended up getting an education. And he created Teach for Uganda, by the way, an amazing charity, if you're ever looking. But um, I asked him, you know, in the West, we think many people think that purpose is, you know, for people who have everything else. And he just kind of chuckled and they said, you know, we know where we are, that purpose gives hope. And if you're poor and you don't have purpose, you don't have hope and you're destined for, you know, a lifetime of poverty. You have to have this future you know, a lot of people call it vision or a future orientation. You have to have possible selves you can perceive yourself as becoming. And that prospective nature helps us get hope 
and and then we start striving for the future and that to me honestly is what makes life fun it makes life worth living and so that's why i think this is an important area that's largely been ignored um you know but I, I think it's incredibly important. I, I was at a recent conversation with a, a former researcher from Gallup who did all the seminal studies and in, in well-being. Yeah. And I, I was, I mean, I I'm sort of, sort of I, yeah, surprised to to know that that work was really the the most important individual factor if, if you measure across all the major domains in an individual's life in, in terms of where they get the greatest sense of, of sort of purpose or well-being. And, 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 and I'm, I'm where we spend most of our waking yeah. hours, Charles. I mean, you know, it, of course, makes perfect sense. Yes. And, and, and yet I think there's probably a part of me that sort of looks at that sort of regrettably. And then there's a part of me that's also sort of incredibly hopeful about that, too. Because, I mean, there is this sort of structural and societal construct around work and so then the the opportunity to actually step into that framework and transform is pretty profound i mean you know it, it's uh, a lot of the proverbial herding of the cats has already happened and so where do you enter that conversation when, when you're talking to uh, a ceo or a, a, a chief yeah. human resource officer about the interconnection between culture and purpose well-being and and just sort of overall stability and security in life. Yeah. Well, you know, this started actually when Emil Durkheim, he's the father of modern sociology in 1897, wrote a book called Suicide. And it's when people in Europe were starting to industrialize more and more. And they were finding in the latter part of the 1800s that people were also committing suicide more and more and alienation on we they're moving from their villages where everyone knew each other and they're very connected to you know Paris or Lyon or wherever and and suddenly they didn't know anyone and they're just working in a factory 12 hours a day well so he wrote this book and he said you know people need a collective purpose they need a reason to find something to connect to and he talked literally about purpose. You need to have this collective purpose. And he said, and where should we have it? The family? Well, now throughout Europe, families are kind of moving around, away, you know? Um, how about the church? said, well, increasingly, especially in France, we're becoming less religious. How about um, the government? said, no, nah, that's not going to give us the purpose we need. He said, of all the places it could be the corporation. He used that term in suicide, yeah. the corporation. And he said, I know it sounds funny because, by the way, he was a communist. <laughs> so <laughs> he wouldn't you wouldn't have expected him to even use the word yes. corporation. Does that make him said, a progressive communist? I know that sounds strange. Sure. But yeah, this is where you could get people thinking. Mm -hmm as a collective and finding tremendous meaning. And I, I really do think, I still think that that is the place. Studs Terkel wrote about it in his book, Working. I mean, people have been talking about this for a long time now, and there are now you know dozens of articles in HBR about purpose at work, you know. McKinsey has a, a, you know an article, you know, help your employees find purpose or watch them leave. Uh, it is so important. We now know there is a recent study showing that college grads offered a job with purpose are willing to accept $20,000 less on average 
than a job they feel does not have purpose to it. So this should be telling HR people and senior leaders something that if you want good employees and you want to keep them, uh, you know, you better have some sort of purpose and it better not be purpose washing, you know, some sort of crap where you're just going, oh, yeah, we believe in this and you don't. Well, in a time period where it seems to be very convenient to to judge and criticize Gen Z, um, that, that, that shows a tremendous amount of early wisdom. That's that's a neat thought. I, I, I wish I had had maybe that sense of early wisdom. Mm. Maybe I did on some mm. level, but I, it, it really it took a lot of active in, in that literally that entire generation is you could really see that in the data and feel that in the data is really powerful. I think it's actually quite encouraging for our future. I certainly see my students working their butts off not necessarily to make money, but to have a job that has meaning to it. And a lot of them think, well, being a doctor will have meaning to it or being in a healthcare profession and being in that area, I understand that and you can get meaning. But at the same time, I'm convinced that you can have just about any job. Remember that that show, I think on the Discovery Channel, Mike Rowe uh, had this, uh, it was called Dirty Jobs. And it was all about the worst jobs you could imagine. And he found so many of those people found great meaning and direction, purpose through their jobs. And I'll never forget when, I mean, you know, with our daughter, we were in the hospital many, many, many times, and sometimes for months on end. And we would watch other kids, you know, suffering or, you know, being in a lot of pain and then going to sleep by themselves where their parents never showed up. We never saw them. Like we were there 24 seven, you know, I'd always sleep there and my wife would. And, but some of these kids wouldn't. And the custodians were the ones who picked up on this. And there is a custodian who used to read a children's book to these children who didn't have parents. I, I break, I, I get very emotional thinking about this because those custodians who would do things like that, they're part of the medical team. And there are other custodians who just said, hey, I'm working for the buck and it's not a lot and I'm going to take as much PTO as I can and, you know, I'm, I'm out of here uh, if I had a slightly better job. But about half of them seem to be so dedicated to being part of that medical team. And sometimes the medical team didn't accept them. And that was a big problem. So upper management and mid-management has to think about everybody in this organization as potentially being part of a collective team because then i mean just for very practical monetary reasons they're going to stay longer they're going to work harder um you know of course we had some con benefits consulting some big consulting company come in as smart as they were i won't name who they are and they decided to rotate the the custodians around campus then regularly as if they're just robots you know, you can just take this Roomba, you know, that eats and move them to another place just to assure that they don't know anyone ever anywhere. Right. You know, just ran and, and it totally screwed everything up. Like, so anyway, we do still really stupid things in management to uh, to try to fix this issue. I, I think the healthcare industry is is really powerful context to understand stress. It, I, there's really interesting research out there that shows that 
across industries, you could be in this, have the same financial health, but frontline workers in the healthcare industry actually manifest that stress at a higher level. Oh yeah, for sure. And I think that's, that that's really interesting. I'm so curious about that in terms of material and financial stress or instability. Uh, in, in, in your approach to determinants, how, how does that arrive yeah. differently in different industries? Yeah. And, 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 and how, how do you sort of that frame up the complexity of that? So not only our listeners can understand it, but frankly, I could too. Most doctors do not recommend medicine to their children anymore. There's something very, very sad about that. Don't you want the best and the brightest taking care of you? <laughs> you, know, you don't want the greediest. Yeah, medicine and politics, no one's going into. Right? Yeah, you don't just want the greediest or the most power hungry being in politics or medicine. You want the smartest. You want the people who have the biggest hearts and you want to support that. But, you know, now there are just so many, you know, there's there's just so many other groups that make money in our medical industrial complex, you might call it. And so I think that's a problem. And that has burned out people. Um, you know, there's one healthcare system that we work with at Kumano a lot. During the height of COVID, they had 62 days in their ICU where not a single person got out alive. I mean, all they were doing is taking corpses out. Now that has to wear on you. Um, I, I give many, many talks to doctors and I ask this simple question right up front. I say, are you doing what you got into medicine in the first place? And everyone shakes their head no, everyone to a person. And you know, I got into it for very different reasons, to, to help people, to save lives, to have an interesting job that could solve problems. And they're going, yeah, I'm not. So uh, anyway, that's, that's maybe an aside, but no, I, I I don't think it is at all. It's yeah, it and, and just to talk about stress, we were talking about it on one one end of the spectrum in a recent conversation that we had. We we're discussing the the reality that you know almost a full third of the workforce is going to experience a crisis across the social determinants of health this coming yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. Whether it's in transportation or housing or food yeah. security. Yeah, and I'm really curious your perspective, Vic, in terms of lifting up that portion of the workforce. Yeah. You know, those folks who are, who are in structural crisis at the moment mm -hmm. and, and how, how to sort of, as an organization, on an organizational level, how do you, how do you um, not only advise senior leadership, but also put systems and programming and, and analytics and predictive models in place that address that kind of structural issue? Yeah, wonderful question. And especially coming from you and what you've been doing, uh, this amazing work with social determinants, you really are very directly addressing them. So um, I feel like I'm talking to an expert in this, but I, one of the things our research has shown very clearly is a good third of full-time employees in the United States have a major, not just a little bit, but a major social determinants issue. And by social determinants, we're talking about housing or financial or food insecurities. Um, maybe second tier might be transportation, elder care, child care, um, you know, communications insecurities, things like that. Those are major as well. But just even, you know, the I don't know 
whether I'm going to be in this home next month kind of question. Or in the last 12 months, I've run out of food and not had money to buy more. That's the question we ask. If you say yes to that, then, you know, you're in this um, in terms of finances. I, I don't know. I won't be able to, you know, stay in this home if I don't get the next paycheck. Things like that. They're literally living paycheck to paycheck. And it it's it's not independent of income, but it's not solely dependent of, in, of income either. It's not just the poor uh, the lowest wage workers who have these insecurities, they're all across the board. Yes. The, the, oh. You know, I mean, you, you, boy, you, you thank you for saying that because I found myself saying literally over the last three to four weeks, dozens of times a week that we must begin decoupling income from our idea or preconceptions yeah. of financial stability. Yeah. They're really two different things. I mean, you have, 20% of boomers who make more than $250,000 a year living paycheck to paycheck, which means, yeah. to your point, they could actually be facing a food insecurity this year and be making a quarter of a million At dollars. At first, when I read that, I didn't, you know, we've done these Harris Poll surveys now, uh, three, three of them a year, and we've done six now. And... I couldn't even believe it when I was looking at the incomes and the insecurities. I mean, of course, it's strongly skewed toward poor, lower incomes, but there are so many others. And then when you talk to CEOs about it, they go, well, sir, you're asking me to pay everybody more, right? And I go, not necessarily. I mean, you know, of course, pay and more equitable pay structures make a lot of sense, I think, in a lot of cases. It attracts employees, et cetera. But man, there's just a lot of people across the board. The other thing that we've found, Charles, is if you have one of these insecurities, you're three times more likely to be suffering depressive symptoms um, using what's called the Patient Health Questionnaire 9. It's nine straightforward questions, heavily validated for the last you know, couple of decades. And the moderate to severely depressed, it's three times the rate if you have one of these insecurities. So this is costing employers. It is definitely costing them. It's costing them in terms of work engagement. We see it in every company we work with. And all we need to do is a quick initial survey of employees, and they'll tell you. They'll, they're also far more likely to intend leaving. So if you want to keep your employees, if you want them engaged, if you don't want them depressed, you don't want them overly anxious, two root causes of that. One is thinking more about your purpose and trying to develop stronger purpose and direction, which is a self-organizing life aim. It just helps you organize your life better. That's all. And helps you kind of, you won't be as distracted by social media or by gossiping in the workplace or whatever. You feel like you're part of something and that's important. And the second root cause are these social determinants and they're, they're pervasive. Your work, and I'm saying this with complete candor and honesty, is the closest that I've seen to actually begin to directly address the core issues of financial stability and instabilities across the social determinants of health. Because you're driving right to the point, which is it is effectively a, a neurological challenge. It is, it lives in the brain 
And, and, and at its core level, if, if there's some sort of occlusion to one binding and getting a sense of purpose, that there's then this absence of hope. And then the absence of hope, you, you know, you're in a perpetual state of, of crisis, you know, and, and, and the idea that, you know, that you are working and the Kamano's work is about really going into a workforce and, and identifying those insecurities and instabilities and those vulnerable parts of the population and driving right to the core point that literally could give an individual, a family, a community enough oxygen to have a sense of hope and purpose. And, and then from, from my perspective, uh, it, it might sound small in context of all that is because when you have that, then then maybe you want to save $10 a month or $20 a month or $100 a month. It's so that you, over you time, you, you've paid yourself enough to respect yourself <laughs> and, and to have a sense of, of dignity in, in context of, of a really sort of tumultuous backdrop of the world, you know? And, and so I just really appreciate the work that you're doing sincerely. I really do. Thank I really appreciate that. You know, I, I think the, the real interventions in this area, in public health, we call them ecological interventions because it's not just saying this is between your ears. And it's also, though, not saying just saying this is everything to do with your environment and nothing to do with you. Right. It's a jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. It's not a horse race. It's not one thing or another. And so often, especially in research, people, you know, glom onto one thing and they go, that's the answer or that's the answer. And they fight all the time about this. You wouldn't believe how, you know, I think it was Kissinger had said, academics are petty because the stakes are so low. <laughs> and I just didn't want a job with low stakes. I wanted to get out in the real world and really try to change things. And what I've come to realize is that it is a jigsaw puzzle. You need multiple layers of different interventions. But if you do that and orchestrate it well, you can see really tremendous results. And, and that's what, you know, that's what gets me excited. Yeah, that sort of multi-domain systems dynamics approach to, that, that you take yeah. is just, it, I, I think, has the ability to well, really not only revolutionize the, the well-being space, but, but I think also just put a, put a framework around what a lot of companies like FinFit or and there are a lot, a lot of wellness companies out there doing, you know, working across a lot of dimensions here. It, it puts a framework around that that I think is really important. In, in that, but I, I, I think that FinFit actually does get this. That's what I'm enjoying about, you know, what what you guys have to offer. You get it, and you also are doing it in a very clever way. So I, I can really see some interesting connections between, you know, this this kind of purpose-driven work and the more SDOH, the social determinants of health work, kind of integrating very effectively. Well, Vic, I, I, I'm going to end this conversation today just by simply saying it's not enough. I, I mean, I, I could go on for an hour or two more hours. And, and so I would just like to, to wrap this conversation by saying, would you please come back and, and help us sort of further unpack this and, yeah. and, and continue the conversation. Uh, and, and, and I just want to, you know, on, on behalf of, of all of our listeners, I, I just know there's a really meaningful conversation and it's been very powerful for me today to participate in it. And I just want to thank you very much for your time. 
Well, I appreciate that. I'm very grateful to you, too, for what you're doing. Uh, I mean, you really do get this, Charles, and I'm not just saying that. You do. I knew that within five minutes of talking to you. So, um, yeah, look forward to continuing to do this. I'd be more than happy to come back.